Hey, Hoopheads, once you finish listening to this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the Hoopheads Podcast Network for even more great basketball content. Hey, yo, everybody, it's Matt Issa, the guy with the shitty basketball takes, or as my buddy Dill likes to call me, the guy who watched Moneyball once and now wants to be the basketball version of Billy Beat. Back again to bring you Chapter 5 of The Quest for the Best, titled Titans, Not Men. Please remember that the first episode of this series, where I set the stage for our grand odyssey and reveal who's getting left out of the big dance, as well as Chapters 2 through 4, where I break down numbers 10 through 5 on our list, are all already up on all podcast platforms, and you should definitely check those out before you dive into this piece of work. Anyway... In the penultimate chapter of this series, we will be unpacking numbers 4 and 3 on my list of the greatest basketball players in NBA history. Timestamps and the link to the article explaining my AOS stat will be included in the description of this episode. So without further ado, I give you the quest for the best. Whatever happens, I want you to know. Let's start this chapter by traveling back in time to my childhood and my early days as a basketball fan. The year is 2008. I'm watching the TNT pregame show for, I believe, Game 4 of the Cavaliers vs. Celtics second-round matchup. At this point, I am in my second full season following the game of basketball, and much has been made about the storied Boston Celtics being in the midst of a 22-year championship drought. Twitter was still in its infancy stages at this point, and the best NBA content we had was ESPN's Cold Pizza with Skip Bayless. Okay, I'm kidding. Even in 2008, his takes were insufferable. I guess the joke's on us, though, because those same shitty takes made him a millionaire. That's besides the point, though. Because of the lack of internet NBA content, I was forced to turn to media pundits to enhance my knowledge on the game of basketball. This led to me consuming hours of ESPN talk shows where they often made references to these mysterious basketball gods. Being that I was nine years old, I was still plenty stupid, but at least smart enough to understand that these basketball gods weren't literal natural beings. Tying it back to the pregame show we just talked about, they had on one of those exclusive player sit-downs with one of the players participating in the upcoming game, in this case Kevin Garnett. But that's not what caught my eye. What caught my attention was the person interviewing KG. This silver-haired, soft-spoken, seven-foot sage of a man a living relic of a bygone era of basketball if I've ever seen one. My nine-year-old jaw dropped, and for a brief moment in time, I was like Lambeau Fields in the movie The Comebacks, looking up at the sky wondering, holy shit, God, is that really you? From that day on, I began to appreciate the basketball establishment's emphasis on respecting the game's elders. Just like ancient civilizations, 
whose kings straddled a fine line between myth and man, number four on the countdown centered basketball's first great dynasty at a time when the sport was regional. Its rules and records were still in the process of formalization, and its stars possessed an aura of mystical proportions. Truly see it to believe it type fair. Now with the call, here is Boston Celtics play-by-play announcer, Sean Grande. I mean, Tommy was... I'm trying to think of a better word than reverence. Like, is... You know, he, he believes Russell was the best ever um, because of the way he would dominate a game. And he did in that era. He dominated the game. And again, Russell would be a great player in any era because he would figure out how to dominate. You know, back then he would block, he would, the game was played in the paint. That's where he was dominant. Bill Russell. Old heads like Tommy Heinsohn place Russell on the premier pedestal and swear that a better basketball player will never grace this earth. While new age guys poke fun at the legend because he played against guys who chain smoked more squares than Swayze. To be fair, cigarettes will always be cooler than vapes. Truth be told, there was no player I had a harder time ranking than this basketball trailblazer. On one hand, the game of basketball was vastly different than the game we know today. With only eight or nine teams in the league for most of his career, the odds of winning a championship were far more in his favor than any other of the guys on this list. But on the flip side, if we're talking about the domination of your particular era, who did it better than the man who won 11 rings in 13 seasons? How did Bill Russell lead the Celtics to nearly a dozen titles and earn himself the moniker, the game's greatest winner? Let's find out. In an era where Elgin Baylor revolutionized the use of verticality on the offensive end with his acrobatic finishes around the rim, it was Bill Russell who ushered in a new defensive wave with his own unique leaping ability. In his first college game, Russell blocked his defensive assignment's first five shot attempts. After the fifth block, his coach immediately called a timeout and cut into Russell, telling the big man that's not how he's supposed to play defense. Just imagine that. In hindsight, the coach was simply following convention, and could you really blame him? By then, basketball had been around for over 60 years, and he had never seen anyone do anything like what Russell just did. Russell wasn't just a basketball pioneer. He was an alien. In an era where there was no three-point line and very few understood the concept of spacing, defense was predicated on a team's ability to contest shots at the rim, and Bill Russell was the ultimate rim guardian. Ranking as the seventh best high jumper in the world going into his rookie season in the NBA, Russell used his insane verticality to climb the invisible ladder on his contests and deny shots access to the rim. From all first-hand accounts I could find, it appears that if blocks were tracked during his time, it would be either Will or Russell who sat atop the all-time blocks leaderboard, not Hakeem. Shot blocking, of course, on its own is not enough to call someone a great defender. In fact, it can usually lead to another shot opportunity for the opposing team, especially if the ball is just recklessly swatted out of bounds. I'm looking at you, Dwight Howard. Not for Russell, though. Surrogate to one of the greatest defensive IQs in NBA history, Russell had the presence of mind to swat the ball to his teammates so the Celtics could kickstart their possession before the opposing team had time to get their defense set. 
More on that a little later. A master tactician, Russell was one of the first guys to play help defense. Able to rotate quickly to provide additional aid to shots at the rim, then instantly recover back to his man if he needed to. This gets me to my next point. Along with his verticality, Russell was also incredibly laterally gifted as well. In college, Coach Phil Wolpert would regularly match him up against the opposing team's forwards because of his ability to dance with them on the perimeter, which is insane considering how inflexible positional constructs were back then. In the NBA, Russell showcased his agility and lateral quickness by occasionally switching on to guards and forwards, where he proved to hold up really well in the small sample size I was able to get my hands on. Bob Ryan even told me that had Russell been transported into today's game, his combination of IQ and athleticism would have allowed him to absolutely nuke opposing teams' pick and rolls. Okay, maybe Bob didn't use the word nuke, but you get the point here. By all accounts, Russell was the ultra-versatile, super-switchable big man that everyone in the NBA is clamoring for today. And the coolest part about all of it was, he was doing it a half-century before anyone else. On top of all that, Russell was the best straight-up band defender out of all the all-time great big men. Which was probably out of necessity because, as Roland Lazenby pointed out to me, defenses weren't nearly as sophisticated as they are today, and double-teaming was practically unheard of at the time. This led Russell to fend for himself. And fend he did. Russell shut down all of the best big men in his era during their primes. Walt Bellamy, Willis Reed, Zelmo Beattie, and Nate Thurmond all saw significant drops in efficiency from their average when they faced up against Boston's Celtic Guardian. Oh, and Wilt is still? Russell hit him with the iconic Richard Sherman verse. If he's Megatron, I'm Optimus Prime holding Will to 6 points less than his average and a 3% dip in normal true shooting numbers. Those are very significant drop-offs in production, especially when you have as large of a sample size against one another as those two do. If you're still not fully understanding just how good of a defender Russell was, here is once again the OG basketball Buddha himself, Dean Oliver. It's a, he's a fair candidate, he's a strong candidate. Uh, I wouldn't I would have a hard time arguing with it uh, in an era where you didn't have the three-point shot, where in many ways offensive uh, offenses were built around being in the paint, um, making things even mid-range and such. Uh, and he was both athletic enough and tall enough and smart enough to really take away what not only the best like Will Chamberlain would do, but uh, so many other good players. Uh, he won all those titles. And uh, I don't like starting with winning those, all those titles, but he he earned a lot of those uh, very much through his defense uh, and at a position that was vital back then. God, he's such a genius. But seriously, he's right on the money here. Russell's combination of verticality, quickness, and advanced IQ on that end of the floor makes him a strong contender for the title as the greatest defender in NBA history. Transitioning over to offense, after watching whatever gameplay I could get a hold of, I can verify that most of the book on Bill's offensive game seems to be true. He can't shoot or self-create in isolation, and he lacked any real moves he could turn to to get looks off in the post. And guess what? That's perfectly fine, because he was able to provide Plenty of value in a plethora of different ways. For starters, 
Along with Olympic level high jumping skills, Russell possessed a sub 50 second 400 meter time, which for reference would have made him eligible to earn a D1 track scholarship in 2021, according to athleticscholarships.net. That's really fucking fast. And he used all of that speed to make himself the best transition finishing big man of his era. On top of that, I'd also say that he was the best transition passing big man of his era too. Similar to Bird and Duncan, Russell's first reaction upon securing a rebound was to locate one of his Celtic teammates racing back on the break. This destructive combination of passing and rim running in transition helped the Boston Celtics lead the league in pace in eight of Russell's first nine seasons. Think about how beneficial leading the league in pace is when the two things that matter most on offense in your era are getting as many possessions as possible and getting as many shots near the rim as possible. I'll give you a hint. Very beneficial. In the half court, Russell was able to provide impact in three very important ways. Through his screen setting, his passing, and his offensive rebounding. I mentioned a couple chapters ago that Tim Duncan may have very well been the best screen setter among all-time greats in NBA history. Well, Russell was probably a close runner-up. While not really as immovable of a force as his counterpart Wilt, Russell was still very sturdy in his own right. Able to set hard screens that helped his teammates gain some much-needed separation. His screen-setting abilities were often used in dribble handoffs, which afforded the Celtics and Red Auerbach the opportunity to deploy one of the more modern, motion-heavy offenses of that time period. His passing was easily the most underrated part of his game. Like we already said, he was a great outlet passer, but he could also make good decisions in multiple different types of situations in the half-court. He could make the right read on dribble handoff actions, find cutters when backing down in the post, or just straight up examine the defense and make the simple pass to the open jump shooter. Taylor's passer rating stat appears to agree with my assessment. As for his career, he scores near a 5 out of 10, which signals that he was an above average passer for his position. This score is also higher than all of the best big men of his era. Even higher than Wilt, the guy who led the league in assists, remember? Which, when coupled with what I witnessed in the games I watched, indicates to me that Russell was the best passing big man of his time. Lastly, his offensive rebounding, which, while a ways away from like a Dennis Rodman, was good enough to be considered one of the best in that category during his time, posting higher offensive rebounding percentages than pretty much any of the big men in his era other than Will. Overall, Russell and his Celtics did just enough on that end of the floor to get them over the hump. That's the thing that people often miss about the original Celtics dynasty. They were never a great offensive team. In all of Russell's 13 seasons, the highest relative offensive efficiency they ever posted was a plus two in 1966-67, which was still only good for fourth in the league out of 10 teams. The reason the Celtics won 11 rings in 13 years was because of their defense, which was, and this is not me being hyperbolic, I know I do it a lot, the greatest defense in the history of the NBA. During that 13-year stretch, the Celtics were number one in defensive efficiency in 12 of those 13 seasons, achieving five of the 25 best defensive seasons based on relative defensive rating in NBA history, including in 1963-64, 
where they posted the best relative defensive efficiency rating in the history of the league at minus 9.1. That means that Bill Russell quarterbacked the defense better than any defense that Tim Duncan, Hakeem Olajuwon, David Robinson, Kevin Garnett, or literally any other great defensive anchor ever has. Looking at individual defensive stats, one of the most interesting findings of my entire project was when I spoke to Greg Steele, aka the Greek guy of stats on Twitter. Really freaking intelligent dude. Everyone go give him a follow. Anyway, Greg created the best matchup-based defensive stats I have ever been exposed to, and during his research found that, at least for a season, every NBA player struggles defensively, at least relative to what their own career production will eventually become. He then said that throughout history, there are only two significant exceptions to this rule. Nate Thurmond, and you guessed it, William Felton Russell. Another fun fact I feel is worth sharing here is that Russell laps everyone in history in defensive win shares, finishing 30 wins above number two all time in that statistic, Tim Duncan. I guess after reading that out loud, I don't know how fun of a fact that was, but I swear to God, analytics are cool. Okay now, hear me out here folks. I know I said that defense is more about five guys moving on a string than about one player's individual brilliance. But there was no greater puppeteer in the history of the sport than Bill Russell. Which leads me to take Dean Oliver's claim that he's a strong candidate for GOAT defender a step further. To me, Bill Russell is the greatest defender to ever grace the hardwood. Just saying. Checking out his accomplishments, Russell gets hurt by the fact that the league did not institute things like Defensive Player of the Year, all defensive teams, and finals MVP until deep into or after his career. Yet somehow, number six still managed to place fourth all-time in my AOS stat with a whopping score of 173.5. And I'm sure everyone's heard the story before, but just to keep with the methodology, here's the lineup of busts on the shelf in his bedroom. 11-time NBA champion, 5-time league MVP, 2-time runner-up, 11-time All-NBA selection, one-time All-Defensive team. Remember, they didn't create that award until his final season. 12-time All-Star and a four-time rebound leader. It's now time for the narrative argument for arguably the most storybook athlete of them all. This time, I have three anecdotal arguments for why Bill Russell finishes fourth in our quest for the best. Argument number one. The pelts on his wall. A guilty pleasure I share with most Americans is I do enjoy occasionally tuning in to First Take to listen to some of the cartoonish banter being exchanged by Max Kellerman and Stephen A. Smith. One of my favorite segments on the show is when Max does the bit where he starts naming off the pelts on Eli Manning's wall that he collected during his two Super Bowl conquests. There's something about hearing the phrase, in Tom Brady twice, that just gets my adrenaline pumping. Anyway, if Kellerman were to do the same routine for Bill Russell, his trophy collection would include the pelts of guys like Bob Pettit, Dolph Shays, Hal Greer, Cliff Hagen, Tom Gola, Paul Arzen, Jack Twyman, Lenny Wilkins, Chet Welker, Gail Goodrich, Walt Bellamy, Dave DeBusher, Walt Frazier, Willis Reed, Jerry Lucas, Nate Thurmond, Elgin Baylor, Oscar Robertson, Wilt Chamberlain, and Jerry West. 
By my calculations, that's 20 Hall of Famers that Bill left like Chris Maltesanti, sitting on the couch wondering, where the fuck is my character arc? Yeah, that's right. Bill was so good at basketball, he had other dudes reconciling their own existence. How many guys can you say that about? Argument number two, the player-coach thing. I'm not saying everyone does, but I feel like most of us are sorely underrating the whole player-coach for two NBA championship teams accomplishment. Like, just imagine if in the middle of season three of Ted Lasso, Coach Lasso retired and Jamie Tart said, you know what? We don't need to hire a replacement. I'm the new head coach. Then he proceeded to lead AFC Richmond to such success that they were promoted back into the Premier League. Do you know what would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. The show would win an Emmy because that kind of Mickey Mouse fairy tale only happens on TV. Unless you're Bill Russell, of course. Russell was able to simultaneously juggle two positions, both requiring tireless effort and commitment, while also being the first African-American coach in any major American sport. This kind of allostatic load would have driven almost any person mad, but not him. No. Russell carried his massive burden to the tune of two championships and three finals appearances in his three years as a player coach. Maybe he really is a god. Argument number three. The greatest winner of all time. There's a famous anecdote in the tale of Russell the Gallant about how Bill would throw up before every single basketball game he played in. And by all accounts, this was no Paul Bunyan tall tale being kicked around by old-timers in front of a campfire. This was 100% true. The prospect of losing and letting his teammates down would make him so physically ill that he would vomit before every tip-off. This still occurred even after he had won more championships than anyone that ever came before him or anyone after him would ever aspire to reach. He still cared that much. You know, when I was an undergrad, I would get pretty nervous before a big exam. What if I failed and didn't make it into law school? What if I let my parents down? Once I got into law school, though, that sense of urgency was gone. Like most people, I was content. I had done what I set out to do. I didn't really give a shit about undergrad exams anymore. That's not Bill Russell. Bill Russell was never content. He was never done. It's just like the great Tommy Heinsohn once said. His whole life depended on whether he won or not. Russell didn't set out to be some... Flash-in-the-pan, fly-by-night, one-trick pony champion. He wanted to be the best that ever lived. He wanted to win every single game. How many people can you say that about? How many people can you look at and definitively say, this guy wasn't content with doing something spectacular just once or twice even. He needed to do it over and over and over again. I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not one of them. You at home? Probably are not either. And that's not a bad thing. Very few people live life the way Bill Russell does. If put in my shoes, Bill doesn't take his foot off the gas pedal when he gets his acceptance letter. He applies more pressure to the lever. 
eager to prove himself worthy of his most recent accomplishment and to build upon it further. You know why? His hunger is insatiable. He leaves nothing in the tank. He lives life with one thought in mind at all times. Win at all costs. And that, my friends, is why Bill Russell is the fourth greatest player in the history of the NBA. So why is Russell higher than almost all of the other great big men? I like to think about it like this. In today's game, the most valuable skill is arguably three-point shooting, meaning the most impactful players will be the guys who can do that the best. That same argument can be made for rim protectors in Russell's era. As we already established, during that time, the shot every team was working for on offense was a shot around the rim. So the person who could stop teams from getting that shot would stand to have a huge footprint on the basketball game. As we also already established, Russell was not simply a great rim protector, but the best one of all time, in an era where that skill mattered the most. That contribution, coupled with his rock-solid offensive profile, was enough for me to say he had a greater impact on his team's success than the modern two-way bigs did on their team's success. And as for why I have the best defensive player ever over the best offensive player ever, I'd say it's because the avenues Russell had for providing offensive value that we touched on in our actual argument were greater than the avenues Magic had for providing defensive value. So why is the man with enough rings to fill both of his hands only fourth all time? I know we said cross-era comparisons need to be contextualized by how well that specific player performed in their specific era, but some sort of line needs to be drawn when in 10 of your 13 seasons, you are playing in a league with less than 10 teams. And this is where I draw my line. The shallower pool of teams led to the playoffs being set up in a way where for most of Russell's career, the Celtics only needed to win two playoff series to be NBA champions. In fact, eight of the Celtics' 11 titles during this run were won in this structure. Also, Russell loses a few points for his inability to efficiently self-create. His true shooting numbers were at or below league average for virtually his entire career, and his free throw percentages and rates were no better. You can impact the box score in so many different ways other than just self-generated scoring, and Russell sure as hell did, but with three contenders as strong as the ones we have left in our countdown, there's no way I can really justify putting Russell any higher than fourth. Hey, Quest listeners. We wanted to take a quick break from our journey to give a shout-out to one of the sponsors of this limited series, Retroshaded. At its core, the quest for the best is 10 stories of extraordinary individuals overcoming great obstacles and defying all odds. That makes Retroshaded a brand built on resiliency and the determination to never give up, the perfect partner for this series. During a rough stretch in his life, the company's CEO and founder, Trevor Macklem, was looking for his purpose. And at the time, the only thing that brought him joy was snowboarding with his brothers. He began obsessively researching the history of the sport to the point that he even started wearing retro-style sunglasses similar to the ones that one of the sport's pioneers, Craig Kelly, wore as he was snowboarding down the slopes all over the world. And after receiving a lot of attention while wearing them at a local resort, Trevor realized that there was an opportunity for him to find his purpose. But more importantly, he realized 
he had a chance to spread to others the sense of inspiration those sunglasses gave him. And just like that, Retroshaded was born. Fast forward to today, and Retroshaded now serves as a symbol of hope and determination for thousands of people all across the country. With over 30 different styles and colors to choose from, Retroshaded has something for everyone. Visit their website, Retroshaded.com today, and pick out a premium pair of sunglasses that are just right for you, without breaking the bank. Listeners of this series get an additional 20% discount by using the code QUEST20 checkout. Visit Retroshaded.com and join the community of hope and inspiration today. Now back to our limited series. And we're back. If you have been gracious enough to endure my bad takes and self-depreciating humor through nearly five chapters, I greatly appreciate you. And to show my gratitude, I'm not going to insult you by doing another corny build-up to a dramatic reveal. Because pretty much everyone following along can figure out through process of elimination who number three on our countdown is. We know from the logo and literally every trailer I've put out for the series that the next chapter is all about LeBron and Jordan. Plus, during my why hire section for Bill Russell, I said higher than almost any other all-time great big man. So yeah, there is no surprise here. Number three on our quest for the best is... I Kareem Abdul, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. These hooks got me scoring, see me coming from afar. Kareem Abdul, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. This is my lane, let me show you how to ball. Sidebar, I don't actually listen to Little Dicky, but I do love the show Dave, and I figured that the intro was the perfect time to force another pop culture reference down your throats. But yeah, Kareem Abdul, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem Abdul. A few chapters ago, I referred to Hakeem's footwork in the post as ballet. Well, in keeping with that analogy, Kareem was basketball's Barishnikov, and the sky hook was his greatest piece of choreography. J. Kyle Mann explains it best in his video series Ball the Right Moves. The sky hook is like a samurai sword, an elegant weapon reserved for a master, and no one before or since has wielded it like the enigmatic Kareem Abdul Jabbar. The most unguardable move in history and the closest thing to a surefire two points that a shot attempt has ever achieved, Kareem used his great balance, timing, and touch to launch the sky hook from various angles and spots on the basketball court. His skill and plastic man structure made the move especially potent and an absolute nightmare for defenders to try and defend. Here's former player Len Elmore explaining how teams would try and counter his sky hook. You gotta play his left shoulder so he can't turn and force him to his right shoulder where, you know, a lot of times he took the jump shot because he didn't take the sky hook much with his left, with his left hand. Um, when he turned that way, it was a jump shot or he would drop step to the basket and finger roll or, or even dunk. And, and, you know, if you did that, particularly oftentimes, if he's set up as you're facing the basket on the right side, he was going to sky hook to the baseline. And that's when you really make sure you get on his left shoulder and force him to step into the paint where you could get some other help and hopefully force him to give the ball up or take an awful shot. But if he was on the left side as you're facing the basket, you know, that sky hook came into the paint and you're hopeful that you could get some help that way. But you tried to, again, force him, force him to the baseline. And as I said, it's all theoretically easier said than done. But, but during those 
that, that one year where I was a starter and then the second year with the Nets where I, I played, you know, a significant amount of minutes, um, you know, that was, that was what you had to do. Len made sure during our interview to conclude his comments with the caveat that you could only try to lessen the blast radius of Kareem's cataclysmic move, and there was no hope of ever fully containing it. The hook was so effective that I'm convinced Kareem probably could have reached at least 30,000 points with it as his only go-to move. That hypothetical, though, is a mute point, because Kareem had way more than one great card in his deck. He could hit you with that leading fadeaway from either shoulder, knock down catch-and-shoot 12 to 15-foot jumpers, or just back his man down and uncoil an offhand finger roll layup. Occasionally, Kareem would even put the ball on the floor, drive to the rim, and unleash a thunderous tomahawk slam. A dunk with so much destructive power, the NCAA literally had to outlaw it for almost a decade. However he chose to score on you in the paint, he did so with all-time levels of efficiency for a big man posting a relative true shooting of about plus 10 during his most efficient seasons from 1970 to 73. The nature of his scoring, a game predicated on skill and length rather than speed and strength, allowed him to continue posting top-tier efficiency numbers well past his prime as he was still at plus 8.5 efficiency in 1984-85 and plus 6 efficiency in 1986-87, his ages 37 and 39 seasons respectively. Like Shaq, Kareem's scoring style was incredibly scalable as well. He didn't require long drawn-out post-up possessions to create shots. Most of the time, Kareem could launch a high-quality shot off within three seconds of receiving the ball. This ability allowed him to flourish alongside high-usage perimeter players like Oscar Robertson and Magic Johnson. The one downside to Kareem's more graceful and refined approach is that it led to lower foul-drawing rates. Kareem's 7 free throw attempts per 100 possessions puts him behind all of the other all-time big men except for Bill Russell. On the flip side though, his less physical scoring style probably contributed to his ability to stick around longer than more physical bigs like say an Alonzo Mourning type. Switching to his passing, I tend to side with Providence head coach Ed Cooley's observation during our interview that Kareem was indeed a good passer for a big man even going as far as to say he preferred him over Shaq in this regard. As K-State coach Bruce Weber told me, Kareem was incredibly composed when making decisions with added pressure on him. I chalk this up to his height at 7'2", affording him the luxury of literally seeing over the top of double teams and finding the weak points in their defense. In the 70s, teams weren't really asking their big men to kick it out to open guys out on the perimeter. Instead, the best passing bigs, like say Bill Walton, were able to consistently find cutters under the rim. Kareem was able to find these guys pretty regularly, although I'd still comfortably say he's a notch below guys like Bill Walton and even other all-time greats like Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett. Also, and this might be me overly nitpicking again, but I'd say that younger Kareem tried shooting over the top of these double teams a little too much for my liking. But who cares what I think? I guess you guys do because you're listening, but other than that, who cares what I think? His outlet passing was a strength as well, which was an incredible asset in the back half of his career when he became a key cog in the Showtime machine. Like most of the other bigs that demonstrated this skill, Kareem had it programmed into his hardware to instantly survey the floor following rebounds to try and ignite the greatest show in Hollywood. Overall, when you fuse his passing abilities with the incredible gravity his interior scoring prowess demands, 
you get the best creator among pre-three-point line big men in the history of the league. When you factor in that he also provided 18 years of top-tier efficiency on Tim Duncan-level volume, I'd say Kareem was the greatest pre-three-point line offensive player, and that he does just enough to narrowly edge out Shaq for the title as the greatest offensive big man in the history of the NBA. Now the question remains, how good was he on the other end of the court? Flight 209 into Denver Radio, climbing to cruise at 42,000. We'll report again over Lincoln. Over and out. Wait a minute. I know you. You're Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You play basketball for the Los Angeles Lakers. I'm sorry, son, but you must have me confused with someone else. My name is Roger Murdoch. I'm the co-pilot. You are Kareem. I've seen you play. My dad's got season tickets. I think you should go back to your seat now, Joey. Right, Clarence? Oh, he's not bothering anyone. Let him stay here. All right, but just remember, my name is Roger Murdoch. I'm an airline pilot. I think you're the greatest, but my dad says you don't work hard enough on defense. And he says that lots of times you don't even run down court. And that you don't really try, except during the playoffs. The hell I don't. Listen, kid. I've been hearing that crap ever since I was at UCLA. I'm out there busting my buns every night. Tell your old man to drag Walton and Lanier up and down the court for 48 minutes. Come on, guys. Would I really be doing a player breakdown on Kareem if I didn't include that clip? Unlike the father of the little boy in the movie Airplane, I have a far more charitable opinion of the big man's abilities. Amassing nearly 3,200 blocks for his career, Kareem was a human fly swatter the likes of which even Jeff Goldblum would have been terrified by. And just like the Titans we talked about earlier in the episode, it's likely that Kareem would have surpassed Hakeem on the all-time block leaderboards as his 3,200 rejections does not include his first four seasons of production since the stat has only been tracked since the 1973-1974 season. However, even when someone does eventually go back and figure out just how many blocks Kareem had in those first four years, I would still say he was inferior to the dream in this regard. Remember we talked a great deal about Hakeem's world-class reaction time that allowed him to materialize at the rim at a moment's notice? Even when he was a couple feet out of position? Kareem didn't have that luxury, and his slower wind-up on his blocks made it so he could only meaningfully contest shots when he was in proper position. This handicap didn't put him at too much of a disadvantage though, as pre-three-point line big men very rarely ventured outside of the paint on defense anyways. When he was in position to stretch those shot-deflecting tentacles, I'd say he was pretty good at properly timing his jumps and locating the basketball. This is apparent in his block-to-foul rate in his post-1973 seasons, where his ratio is closer to a Tim Duncan than it is a Shaquille O'Neal. The Gentle Giant was also surprisingly sturdy when it came to banging with big men down on the low block. He could trade blows down there with Will and Willis in his prime, in his later years, he had enough old man strength to hang in there with Malone's and the Samsons of the world. This ability to battle with other giants on the low block well into his late 30s allowed Kareem to remain a serviceable defensive anchor even when he had lost most of his mobility. Speaking of his mobility, another thing people often forget about pre-80s Kareem was the fact that he moved really well. Like we said, he didn't have a great reaction time, but he was agile as hell. He could move laterally step-for-step step with pretty much any big man of the 70s, 
close out on shooters on the perimeter, sprint down the floor for chase down blocks, and although it rarely ever happened, he could venture out onto the perimeter and dance with speedsters in space. I told you guys he was graceful. Like most uber-athletic guys that play in the league for a long time, Kareem's quickness and mobility faded as he got older and added on more muscle to his frame. This resulted in Kareem becoming the clearly balding, goggles-wearing sage man we remember him being on that end of the court in the late 80s. One attribute that wasn't really age-specific about Jabbar's defense was his noticeably average motor. Thankfully for the sake of his cholesterol, his lack of conditioning never reached sack levels, but still he paled in comparison to some of the greats in this department. This frailty, coupled with the high offensive burdens he often shouldered for most of his career, led to Kareem picking his spots on defense out of necessity. While watching him, I noticed him occasionally taking his foot off the pedal on defensive possessions, which sometimes led to him being late to a rotation or completely out of position altogether. His lackluster motor is also evident in his rebounding numbers. Far from tenacious in that aspect of the game, Kareem boasts the worst defensive rebounding rates of any of the all-time great big men. Remember when I called Bird a center-level defensive rebounder? Well, what led me to call him that was the fact that he had a higher career defensive rebounding percentage than Jabbar. That's not a good look for good old Roger Murdoch. When combining the numbers with the film, I'd say that pre-80s Kareem qualifies as a high-level defensive anchor as he quarterbacks four top two defenses in his first six years in Milwaukee, including two number one finishes in 1970-71 and 1971-72. He remains a solid defensive anchor on offensively slanted rosters throughout his entire career as the Lakers only finish in the back half of the league in defensive efficiency twice in his 14 seasons with them. Still, his poor rebounding, slower reaction time, and at times positional aloofness keep him a solid notch below the all-time great defenders we've talked about in this series. What earns him his place as number three in our quest for the best are his jaw-dropping offensive numbers. At the peak of his powers, Kareem quarterback what is, to this day, the greatest single-season offense, according to relative offensive efficiency, in the history of the league. And the craziest part about all of it is, it wasn't even with the Showtime Lakers. In 1970 the eventual world champion Milwaukee Bucks posted a plus 9.3 relative offensive rating, along with having the best defense in the league that season. During his entire two-decade-long career, Jabbar's teams only finished outside of the top five in offensive efficiency three times. In that same span, his teams finished first in offensive efficiency eight times, six times in LA with Magic, and twice in Milwaukee with Robertson. He also led four number two ranked offenses, which means that for 60% of his career, teams featuring Kareem Abdul-Jabbar were guaranteed one of the two best offenses in basketball. In terms of individual stats, to put that plus 10 relative true shooting efficiency from 70 to 73 into context, that efficiency is higher than any season from any of the all-time great big men and higher than any LeBron or Michael Jordan season. Shit. The 8.5 he puts up in his age 37 season is higher than any MJ season. You know which current stars he's in the same room as in terms of efficiency? Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. And he's a center. A center who, 
is as efficient as two of the most efficient volume scorers in the history of the league. Kareem's stellar efficiency does tail off a bit in the playoffs, but most of this can be chalked up to the awful age 40 playoff run he has in 1988, which I wouldn't hold too much against him considering most people his age are shooting skyhooks over cubicles, not the best athletes in the world. Besides, his efficiency was so ahead of the curve that even a significant drop-off is still elite-level production. Also, his volume, which like I already said was pretty high in the regular season, sees a small uptick in the playoffs. In summary, Kareem is just ridiculous. That's it. For a while, I was strongly considering adding a seventh chapter just to talk about the Alex Garland-level mind-fucking number of awards on his resume. He's a six-time NBA champion, two-time finals MVP, six-time regular season MVP, one-time runner-up, 15-time All-NBA selection, 11-time All-Defensive selection, 19-time All-Star, two-time scoring champ, four-time blocks leader, and a nine-time PER leader. That's right. He nearly had a decade worth of seasons leading the league in John Hollinger's PER stat. He did that in an 11-year span, too meaning he led the league in player efficiency rating 82% of the time during that time span. Don't you just love it when I do simple division for you guys and call it research? Anyway, all of that gives him a 218.5 in my stat, which is somehow only good for second all time. For our anecdotal section, we're going to cheat a little and deviate from the original formula by combining this section with the Y higher section. Because there is no clickbaity, flashy argument for why Kareem is as great as he is. Bob Ryan literally had to make it a point during our interview to tell me, I better not forget about Kareem and all this. Like, that's just the kind of guy he is. Kareem is the basketball equivalent of Marty Bird. So simple, yet effective at the same time. And the reason that Kareem deserves to be the best player ever, not named LeBron James or Michael Jordan, is, to put it simply... Because the most damaging weakness of every other contender we talked about is a strength for the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Think about it. Kobe struggled with efficiency. Kareem is as efficient as a Prius. Hakeem's monopolizing tendencies make it difficult to build elite offenses around him. Kareem's skills made it nearly impossible not to. Duncan never had a dominant three-year reign of terror, while Kareem, as Clayton Crawley likes to put it, Kicked so much ass in the 70s, he's still surprised he didn't break his foot. Bird struggled gaining separation on his shots. Kareem only needed to raise his hand to create a virtually unblockable shot. Shaq struggled with his weight. Kareem was able to meaningfully contribute until he was 41. Magic couldn't contest shots to the rim. Kareem handed out more blocks than Jalen Rose on Twitter. Russell didn't have a go-to move. And Kareem had the greatest go-to move of them all. So now, you might ask yourself, with such an amalgamation of skills, why isn't he higher? Just like I did in the beginning of the breakdown, I'm not going to sit here and waste any more of your time. Kareem is only number three on our countdown because of the existence of two very specific individuals who we've literally spent the whole series hyping up. Still, being the third greatest player and the greatest big man in our quest is no small feat. Congrats to everyone's favorite gentle giant, 
and the rest of the players I have mentioned throughout each of these five chapters. To even be considered for an exercise of this nature means that you have had one hell of a career and have accomplished more than a nerdy writer typing away in his month-old unwashed Space Jam t-shirt could ever hope to achieve. It has truly been an honor to study all of your careers for as long as I have, and I can only hope that I was able to provide each player with the respect their career so desperately deserves. Still, in order for our journey to be fully complete, there is one final distinction I must make. Who is the greatest player to ever play our game? To find out, please do me the honor of joining me next week for one final episode. Chapter 6, titled, The Quest for the Best. Thank you.